hopefully the planes are all gone and uh, we can go through the sermon with fewer interruptions this morning. If you're joining us by video, you're missing all of the beautiful smells of the park here this morning. Turn with me in a Bible or just open your bulletin. I, you might want to just read from the bulletin this morning because of the wind. I'm going to do that even though normally I prefer to read from the Bible. I'm going to read from the bulletin. Our text is Exodus 6, 26 through 7, 7. You notice that I printed in the bulletin beginning with verse 16. And the reason we're not going to read verse 16 to 25 is that it's a uh, uh, genealogy, and I'll speak to genealogies uh, in just a, a minute, and into to this one in particular. But let's begin reading at verse 26. These, that is the Aaron and Moses from the genealogy, Aaron and Moses being brothers. These are the Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, "Bring out the people of Israel from the land of Egypt by their hosts." It was they who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing out the people of Israel from Egypt. This Moses, this Aaron. On the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh. And your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will say, lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did as the Lord commanded. Now Moses was 80 years old, and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Oh Lord, will you strengthen us by the reading and hearing of your word, and now by my words. May my words be acceptable in your sight. Our meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, pleasing to you, building up your church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Moses and Aaron are given this seemingly impossible task, and over and over again, Moses comes to God with this question, some form of objection to the calling that he received, began to receive in chapter 3 and and chapter 4. Chapter 3 and 4 are five objections that Moses raises to God, why he should not be the one to go to Egypt. Furthermore, it seems like the task is doomed to failure. 
God says, but I will harden Pharaoh's heart, verse 3, to let the people of Israel go out of heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. More than that, the Israelites themselves already saw the signs that Moses and Aaron had, the miracles they did with the, the staff that turned into a serpent and the leprous hand. They saw and believed, but as soon as they saw Pharaoh's hardness of heart and his response and came back and realized that their task was harder, they rejected Moses and Aaron as well. So here's the big question that arises from this text. Why, why would God still call Moses? You see Moses' objection. He's done everything so far that God has told him to do and been met step by step with failure. And the question we can ask ourselves is, are there places in our lives where we've been motivated to do something, particularly of a spiritual nature, particularly related to the truth of God's word and our calling, where we keep running into failures. We're called to show love and kindness to certain people, but they keep rejecting us. Or are we called to proclaim the good news of the gospel to others in word and deed, and people keep rejecting it? Maybe you have never seen a single person come to faith in Jesus Christ because you're sharing it. Or, or do you feel like even people in the church, you, you feel called to love them or do something for them, and yet still you feel like there's rejection that's coming from it. It's a common question for all of us. And part of the reason that we see the, the, the um, genealogy that's given to us earlier, that we're going to touch on that a few times, is that this isn't a problem that's just experienced by leaders of God's people, Moses and Aaron. This is a problem that's faced by all of God's people. In a frustration in not seeing results from something that we are pretty confident that God has called us to do. And what do we do when we face those trials? The genealogy reminds us that the book of Exodus is not just a book about Moses and Aaron. There's a great temptation to read about these great leaders and be motivated to do something great for God and miss the whole point of the book of Exodus. And that is that God called Moses and Aaron to be his ambassadors, his representatives, to rescue the whole people, all of Israel, out of this bondage, out of slavery, to give them a, a hope and a future. But it's not just Moses and Aaron who are involved in this. In fact, the genealogy of Moses and Aaron points us back to multiple generations of people, who many of, many of which we know very little about, but each of those generations was essential, was vital for Moses and Aaron to be there, to have inherited certain things from their family, to have learned certain identities. And the genealogies remind us that it's not just the heroes of the faith that are important to God, but it's everyone who is in his group of people. The, the concept of an ordinary life to some degree 
G.K. Chesterton talks about the, the, the most extraordinary thing being uh, an ordinary man, an ordinary woman raising ordinary children in the household of God. professor at Westminster Seminary here nearby, Pastor Michael Horton, wrote a whole book they titled Ordinary, just to combat the temptation we have and the popular culture notion of what is great in God's eyes that says we have to do something great for God in order for God to think that we're great, in order for other people to think that we are great. The call to faithfulness is a call to every one of us as one of God's people. And in fact, when we try to be heroes of the faith, when we're not called to do something like Moses and Aaron were, the inevitable response and the inevitable result is that we will do that at the expense of other people. We'll try to steal other people's glory. We'll be envious of other people's work. We'll, we'll have all kinds of trouble. But, but when we find sufficiency in who God has made us to be and in the things he has called us to do and see those small tasks as God-given important tasks, we live a life that is filled with meaning and satisfaction in a way that's, that's um, unavailable in the world's eyes that says you have to do something amazing to really matter. And so what a text like this does is it points us not only to Moses and Aaron, but to the whole family that produced Moses and Aaron, and also to the whole people that Moses and Aaron are rescuing, and that includes us and as adopted members of the family of Israel as the church today. The church is the Israel of God. And it draws us in close to this, this wrestling that Moses is doing with God in trying to figure out how he is going to do this great thing that God has called him to do, this important thing. And it informs how we're to do the, the everyday things and then occasionally the great things that God calls us to do. Or the, the larger things, I should say, not that they're greater. Now, why does, why does God call Moses to do this thing that seems like it is impossible and doomed to failure? And I want to give us three reasons, three quick reasons, why God does this. And then I want to look at how this passage plays out in pointing to... Uh, um, well, I'll give you that outline in a minute. The first reason is to see Moses and to see the reason that God is calling him to do this thing. The first one is for faithfulness. Last week and a few weeks before, we talked about the purpose that God has in our suffering, even when we can't see the purpose. What God is calling Moses to do has purpose, even though he can't see the purpose. And one of the first things that we need to learn about God is that he has reasons. And when he calls us to do something, the first thing he desires is our faithfulness, our belief that he has called us to it and will provide for it.
Now, it doesn't mean that we can't ask questions. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't search out the scriptures. We should search out the scriptures because when we feel called to do something, it should be affirmed not only by the scriptures, but by others around us and the desires of our own hearts. In fact, God doesn't, God doesn't rebuke Moses when he keeps coming to him over and over again and, and, and effectively saying, are you sure, God? Are you sure this is what you are calling me to do? Because it seems like I am not the person to do this. God keeps patiently answering Moses and providing for his every need. So the first reason is faithfulness. The second reason is rescue. You see, God keeps telling Moses that Pharaoh's going to harden his heart, but he also keeps assuring Moses that he is going to do the thing that he has promised, and that is to rescue his people out of slavery. And even though the Israelites balked at this idea, they they rejoiced when Moses came and showed signs, but then once Pharaoh hardened his heart and said, no, here's more work for you to do, they immediately withdrew from from Moses and said, "We're, we're with Pharaoh here. We're not with this Moses. But God keeps on pressing this point that it's he, it's him, or it's he that is going to rescue the Israelites. You know, think about this. If, if Moses would have just spoken to Pharaoh and Pharaoh said, all right, fair enough. I get God is powerful. He's bigger than I am. The people can go. There would have been no opportunity for God to show not only his people, but also the Egyptians just how powerful he is. God had purpose in showing his power, in rescuing his people. God could have even offered to pay for the slaves so that Pharaoh could have presumably gone and bought other slaves or something to that effect. all kinds of provision that God could have looked to to free his people from slavery, but he chose to do this rescue in order to show his power. So the first call is to faithfulness. The second one is to recognize that it's God who does the rescuing in our lives. It's intended to show the Israelites God's power to rescue them. It's intended to show us God's power to rescue us from things that we think are are inescapable. And the third thing is that God's not just concerned to physically rescue the Israelites and to show the Israelites his power. He's also showing the Egyptian people his power. And we see from the text at various places that although Pharaoh doesn't turn his heart to God, he certainly, by the end of it, recognizes God's power. And more than that, some of the Egyptians who had looked to Pharaoh as their God, who had looked to various people, do turn and believe in Yahweh, the Lord, and follow him to some degree. And so God's third purpose in this is witness. We've seen this over and over. It's, it's in the faithfulness and in the rescue and in God showing his power. He's proclaiming the gospel to others around us. 
In fact, oftentimes we're tempted to think we need to do great things by our own power and we're failing if we're not doing those things, but it's actually in our weakness and our inabilities to succeed and do these things that we're called to do that God shows that it's not by us or any power within us that they're being done. It's by God's power himself. Which leads us to our first point, and here's the rough outline of the passage today. I don't know if you picked up on it, but there are three parts of the body that are mentioned here. The first one is Moses' lips. He says, my lips are uncircumcised in verse 30. The second one, verse 3, is Pharaoh's heart, the heart being the center of the heart of Pharaoh being the center of the people of Egypt. Pharaoh's heart directed the people. It was a clear symbol. It says his heart was hardened. And the fourth is God in his hand. Speaks of his mighty hand in passages earlier. And this time he speaks of uh, his hand and then his outstretched hand, which is a symbol of might and power. So Moses' lips, Pharaoh's heart, and God's hand. There's our rough outline. The first thing we come to is Moses' lips. He says, I am a... Uh, I am of uncircumcised lips. Now, if you've been with us for a few weeks, you might have recognized as a recurring theme in chapter 4, one of Moses' objections is that his, his lips or his mouth is, is heavy. And that seems to clearly point to some type of speech impediment, that he, he can't speak well, or perhaps he's not articulate in his word choice or something to that effect. His, his, uh, his mouth is heavy. Then when we come to chapter 6, not once but twice, he objects to God and he says back in verse 12 and then again in verse 30, I am of uncircumcised lips. A different language in the Hebrew is pretty interesting that he, he escalates this. And of course, circumcision is something that's done to the male genitalia. But now he refers to that in language is similar to what Isaiah, you know, the prophet Isaiah in chapter six, he says, I am of unclean lips and God comes and he touches Isaiah's lips with an, with a coal from, from the, uh, the altar of sacrifice. And he says, I have made you clean. In a similar way to be circumcised was to mark yourself for to be for a child to be marked as a child of the covenant in a similar way that we use baptism today that you are marked as a covenant covenant child it's set apart it's somebody who's made holy and what Moses is referring to here is that he is more than just a speech impediment. He feels like he is spiritually not up for the task, that his lips are not holy enough to take the words of God to Pharaoh and speak those words. And what God keeps telling him over and over again is, what I have made holy, don't call unholy. Now, this is a fascinating concept, and you see it recurring throughout the Scriptures. What I have called you to do, don't reject it. Don't turn away from it. Again, Isaiah, but you know the story in Acts chapter 10 and 11, where the people are wrestling through some of these older Jewish laws, 
And not that they're that much older than the other laws, but the, the old Jewish laws, particularly around circumcision and certain foods that are clean or unclean in the Jewish tradition, in the Jewish uh, law. There's a fascinating scene where God is speaking with Peter, the chief of the apostles. And Peter's called, probably should wait now. And Peter, God calls Peter to go to the house of a man named Cornelius, who is a Gentile, not Jewish. And so he's got all this food in his house. It's unclean. And typically Jews would not even go in the house for fear of touching something that was unclean. And God reveals this, these animals laid out on a sheet or some type of cloth, all these unclean animals. And God says, I am calling these things clean now because what Jesus does on the cross satisfies and abrogates any kind of need for the continued circumcision and the food laws in a way that's, that's, that's unique and the sacrifice, sacrificial system. Those are the three primary things. And then twice he says to Peter, because Peter's wrestling through this question. These things have been unclean. They've, they have always been unclean to me. And God says, what I have made clean, don't call unclean. Acts 11, 9, 10 is one reference to that. The, uh, um, the other one's back in chapter 10. I don't have the, the verse. But what I have called clean, don't call unclean. And you see, when, when God calls us into life of ministry, we, we are called and we are forgiven of our sins, but, but we still have besetting sins in our lives. We still have things that we feel like they disqualify us for the work of ministry around us. But God calls us to be his ambassadors, to be a royal priesthood, to be engaged in the work of ministry while we still have sin in us. Because that sin doesn't define us, and the sin doesn't justify us or cause us not to be justified, but rather Jesus' righteousness that has been given to us, imputed into us, equips us for the task. The language of the baptism of the Holy Spirit that comes on the people of God is similar language. It's equipping the people for the task throughout the book of Acts. And God is saying to us, what, what he has called us to do, what we have been made holy to do, but not because of what we've done, but because of what Jesus has done, don't come to him and say, I am of uncircumcised lips. I am an unholy person. And if you don't believe me, just look at the life of Moses, not just from the beginning of his life, but from this point on. And Moses is called to this great task, but he keeps on stumbling along the way. And he keeps on forgetting the faithfulness of God and, and distrusting God and his faithfulness. And it reminds you also of Peter later, or earlier in Peter's life, when Peter is with Jesus and when he's about to go to the cross to be betrayed, Jesus asks him, 
will you leave me? Peter says, I will never leave you. Even if everybody else forsakes you, I will never leave you. And what happens three times when Jesus is on trial and being drugged from place to place, Peter denies that he ever knew Jesus. It's an interesting parallel to Moses three times saying to God, I, my lips are unclean. But what does Jesus do after his resurrection? He comes to Peter and three times he says, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, yes. He says, feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Yes, feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I do. Feed my sheep. This three times repeating things is meant to assure us that God has called us to certain work and equipped us for it, not because of the great things that we bring to bear, but because of what he has done in our lives and continues to do in our lives. Now, it's true that God uses Moses' background. Forty years he was trained in the best schools in leadership, but then 40 years he spent out in the wilderness as a shepherd. Also good training in some senses, but the training that Moses needed more than anything was the encounter with the Holy God. And the exchange with him that reminded him that his call was not by his own power but by God's and that God was going to provide everything he needed for the task. You may ask why in chapter 7 verse 1 God says, uh, see I've made you like God to Pharaoh. And actually the text is a little bit rounded out because that is the apparent meaning but the, the Hebrew says even more specifically, I have made you God to Pharaoh. And your brother Aaron to be your prophet. And it speaks to the, the organizational structure of the Egyptian kingdom, which, which Pharaoh rarely spoke to the people. It was a way of separating himself because Pharaoh was viewed as a god. And so Pharaoh would send his prophets or his spokespeople out to speak to the people. And God was giving Moses' task to be like God. But it was Aaron who was going to be doing a lot of the speaking. It was a conceptual way to communicate to Pharaoh an organizational structure. And Moses, Moses was like Pharaoh in one sense, as Pharaoh was to the other Egyptian gods like Ra, the god of the sun. And so Moses wasn't God himself, but God gave this task to Moses to be like God. And he even graciously gave Moses Aaron, who he says is more articulate, can speak better than you. He doesn't rebuke Moses in his questions and his inquiries, but he provides for him. Psalmist, the salt, the words of the Psalms repeatedly show us this crying out to God. Oh Lord, how long? And even language like Jesus quotes, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The invitation is to call out to God, to respond to Him, to question Him in an expectant manner that He will provide the answers to you. Pharaoh's heart is the second point here. 
I've already said that Pharaoh's heart was considered the center of life and the direction of the Egyptian people. And so for God to say that Pharaoh's heart is hardened had implications not only to the Israelite reader or to us who says, well, of course his heart was hardened, he was far from God. But if the Egyptian people heard this or Pharaoh himself heard that his heart was hardened, that was a troubling fact for the people because it meant not just that he was a cruel ruler or he was a task-based ruler, but that his heart was misdirected or even lifeless. And the reminder of this passage really points us to the sovereign will of God, the sovereignty of God to control all of human activity and human events. And the common objection is, well, is this really fair to Pharaoh or the people of Egypt that God hardened his heart? And we see throughout the rest of the story here that, that is sometimes speaks of God hardening Pharaoh's heart and then other times that Pharaoh hardens his own hearts. And the question of, is this a logical conundrum can only be answered by saying it's a both and. And we see this in various places in Scripture where our logic fails us and yet God, God can do what is humanly impossible in the most obvious example of that is in the salvation that Jesus wins where where the need for justice and that is the punishment of wrongdoing of crimes is met with mercy and that is the pardoning of wrongdoing and crimes you see justice and mercy are irreconcilable differences unless unless they're brought together by something that explains the conundrum, that unties the Gordian knot. And the cross is foolishness, the scripture says, to those who are perishing, but it's wisdom to those who have been saved. It's it's a sign of life to those who have been saved because the cross reconciles those things. It recognizes that the punishment for the crime needs to be done And that is Jesus hanging on the cross. But that the people need mercy. And that's also extended by Jesus. Given freely because he has paid the price. Now I want to take this and turn it back to be a mirror onto our own hearts. And the question being, who hardens our hearts? Or who softens our hearts? You see, one of the biggest questions in the church today and uh, in, 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 around the world is the question of who decides? Who decides who is going to believe? Who decides whether I will believe? And the question really comes back to this, who hardens our hearts or who softens our hearts? And the question is, is it God who hardens our hearts? Is it God who softens our hearts? Is it our hearts that are, is it us that, that soften our own hearts? Is it us that, to, that, to, that harden our own hearts? And, and over and over again, in the Old Testament and also in the New Testament, particularly in the Hebrews, there's this instruction, today if you hear God's voice, don't, don't harden your hearts. Don't harden your hearts. 
as the people did in the wilderness. There's a responsibility that we have. If we, if we hear the words of God and they just come in one ear and go out the other, if we have no responsiveness to us, if, if when we hear the gospel preached, it has no resonance to us, whether it's spoken articulately or not, the, the core message of the gospel that God has loved us so much that he gave his only son so that we would be saved, rescued. If it falls on deaf ears, we have to ask the question, are we hardening our hearts to that good news? And what's causing that hardness of heart? And there there are two answers to this. One is that every one of our sins, every bit of our nature, our human nature, is pushing against God's call and saying, I want to do this my way. Like Adam and Eve did, I hear you, God. You said one thing, but I believe that there is another way. But there's also another thing. It's both our hearts, but it's also what we've inherited from Adam and Eve. And that is this concept of original sin, that we are corrupted as people by this original sin. It enters into our hearts. You see, we are born with a hardness of heart. We are born with a hardness of heart that can only be taken away if God softens our hearts. You hear the both and here. And the only way that our hearts can truly be softened is if the Holy Spirit comes in and does a work in our hearts. It it is completely and utterly impossible for us to save ourselves, even for us to respond to God unless the Holy Spirit comes into our hearts and softens them to the point where we are receptive to hear the words of God. You are a sinner in need of grace and it is impossible to save yourself. And if that Holy Spirit never comes into your heart to soften it, you will never turn to God. You will keep hardening your own heart. And you see, with that explanation, it's not just an easy thing of, does God harden our heart or do we harden our hearts? It's a both. But the only way that we can soften our heart or have our heart softened is if God does it in our lives. And that speaks to the last image here, and that is God's mighty hand. And what he does with his mighty hand is he he says he's going to show. He's not just telling, he's going to show his power to save by the work of his mighty hand. He's going to show that he has power to rescue a whole people, more than a million in number, from the world's superpower and their, 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 their He's going to save them not just from the Egyptians wanting to enslave them. He's going to save them even from themselves wanting to remain enslaved. Because that's where we are in our hearts when we're far from God, when our hearts are hardened. We are desiring to stay enslaved rather than to be rescued out. And so God says by his outstretched hand, he is going to rescue this people who don't even want to be saved And that is exactly what he 
can and does do in the life of a believer. He comes and grabs us when we don't even want to be saved. If you ask any atheist, former atheist who has come to salvation, if they were desiring God's salvation when they came and sought out God, almost every one of them, if not everyone, will say, no, I was happy where I was, but God came and rescued me out of this slavery. I didn't want the rescuing. It was God who came and did it by his mighty hand. They might not use that language specifically, but God is using that language to describe what he did. By his mighty hand, he rescues this people out of this slavery and into a land flowing with milk and honey, into a personal relationship with him, into all the presence, his presence with his people, even as they wrestle with him in the wilderness and show themselves to have small faith or even no faith at all. Time and time again, God says, I am with you. I have rescued you. You are my people and I am your God. Sometimes I feel like these passages in this story in particular and some of the Old Testament stories are going to be redundant when I go to study them. God's already said almost everything in this passage we have today, but never in such a concise way that leads us up to this great deliverance that he's, he's preparing his readers for, our ears for, and that is in the ten plagues that he brings as signs for the Israelite, for the Israelite people and for the Egyptian people and particularly for Pharaoh of what he can and does do. God gave Moses exactly what he needed to do the task. Moses didn't want to be responding to God's call any more than the Israelite people did. But by God's mighty hand, he equips Moses for that task and rescues the Israelites just as he can equip us for the task he's called us to and has or will rescue us out of the slavery we have to sin and into this great freedom he's promised. He repeats it three times. Moses, I will go with you. Jesus says, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Let's pray. O Lord, you are holy, holy, holy. And in our hardness of heart, you have reached in and softened what is unholy and touched our lips with the cold to make them holy and to put your holiness in us by the work of Jesus Christ. You have equipped us for the tasks you have called us to help us to identify those tasks and live into them more and more each day and to trust your provisions. Father, will you bless us as we go in our way this this week and equip us for the tasks you've called us to. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.